It's very strange to have a historian uh, and a, an economist on uh, the same program. I was joking with Professor Harris earlier that uh, if economics is correct, history could not have existed. It's logically impossible according to everything you're taught in the economics department here. Uh, on the other hand, if history actually existed, then everything you're taught in economics is a parallel universe science fiction. They're, they're incompatible. Uh, the economists say that uh, money and uh, interest and credit all begun by individuals bartering uh, as if you were Alan Greenspan and uh, uh, Ayn Rand somehow on a desert island uh, very selfishly deciding uh, how to uh, truck and barter trying to make a profit off each other. Uh, <laughs> maybe each win. But uh, if you look at history, this isn't what happened. Uh, Randy began uh, with a something that he, a bone that he said was 50,000 years old. It wasn't. It was 28,000 years old. He couldn't read it. My friend Alex Marshak at uh, Harvard University at the Peabody Museum can read it. It was a calendar bone of uh, the uh, movements of the moon. The job of the chieftain in the Paleolithic societies that Alex described uh, was to keep the calendar because all social and economic life centered around the movements of the season, the calendar, bringing people together at the solstices or equinoxes uh, in uh, chief parts. And the reason I mention this is that money and credit and interest and enterprise all uh, can only be understandable once you understand the calendar, uh, which is not taught uh, in the economics courses, but I'll explain what I mean. Uh, in these primitive societies, from the Ice Age down to the Stone Age and into the Bronze Age, and even today in the tribal societies that anthropologists talk about, it's considered very impolite to try to make money. If there was somebody like Alan Greenspan or Ayn Rand, and if one of them were the chieftains, they would be thrown out of their chieftains. It's considered bad manners. In Australia, uh, they say, uh, the uh, nail that stands up from the wood gets hammered down. Uh, and the reason is, in a low surplus society, if somebody makes a lot of money or a profit, they make it off somebody else. And society cannot afford to have wealthy people make money at other people's expense, pushing them below the break-even point so that they are unable to support themselves, unable to have their own land. Because if you do this, then what's going to happen? The people will emigrate and just leave the society. Uh, or as uh, we Irish say about uh, modern elections, we vote with our backsides. In that case, they do what they do. When uh, Alan Greenspan's and neoliberal policies are imposed in, on uh, Latvia, uh, the, the working force emigrates. When it's imposed on Greece, the working force emigrates. This has gone back uh, for tens of thousands of years. So what happened in... Uh, the development of Western civilization was there was one part of the world where it was necessary to have a surplus because while the ideal of every early society was to be self-sufficient, everybody had to grow their own foodstuffs, it's almost as primitive as if you lived in, say, modern-day Moscow, where you have to uh, have a country dacha to grow your food. Uh, to bring in to uh, that. Uh, most people in uh, the ancient Near East uh, ha uh, had uh, plots on the land to support themselves, whether they lived on the land uh, or in the cities. However, this uh, Mesopotamia uh, in the Near East uh, had this rich soil that was uh, deposited 
uh, by rivers for uh, millions of years, very rich, good for growing crops, but because it was all deposited uh, by rivers, it didn't have metal, it didn't have stone, and they didn't have even very much hardwood, so they had to trade. Now the question is, if you're going to settle in a country like modern, uh, which is where modern Iraq is, how are you going to get the metal and uh, the uh, raw materials that you need to make the Bronze Age, the Bronze Age, uh, to make uh, the metal implements you needed uh, to do farming and other things. Uh, the solution was uh, to essentially set up public institutions, the temples and the palaces, uh, and basically these evolved out of the chieftains' households, but somehow the chieftains were, uh, it was a multi-ethnic society uh, of uh, Semites, uh, Sumerians, nobody quite knows where they come from, uh, other groups, uh, and they uh, had to agree on a kind of uh, honest broker of standardization. And the first uh, standardization, the origins of almost all of the economic enterprise that we have today, money, coinage, debt, uh, in payment of interest, contracts, uh, legacies, uh, all of these agreements come from one part of the world, Sumer, basically in the third millennium BC from about uh, 3200 BC to about 1200 BC. So the palaces basically had, uh, were where the economic surplus uh, was organized and the palace, uh, uh, just as chieftains in an anthropology society would support the widows and orphans uh, and other dependents, the cripples in their households, uh, so the temples of Sumer did this. Uh, when I say widows and orphans, it's, it's always very confusing to an economic audience. Widows and orphans in antiquity did not have trust funds. Uh, today you, have, you say we, ha we ha have to keep the interest higher, the widows and orphans can't live. Uh, the widows and orphans were actually not the richest people of society as they are today. They were actually the poorest people of society. So in the Bible, when they talk about widows and orphans, they're, uh, they're not talking about the billionaires who uh, the presidents are talking about when they say we need to uh, uh, keep wages low and interest rates high so the widows and orphans can uh, get their uh, standardized income. Well, anyway, uh, the temples uh, would, or would essentially employ them in the weaving workshops. They would consign the, uh, the textiles and the weaving things to uh, mer traveling merchants, and uh, the merchants uh, would take something worth, say, uh, five minutes, and in ten years, or five years, they would have to give back uh, twice as much, uh, double the sum. That was the origin of interest. It was supposed to approximate what uh, the merchants uh, would get. And as it happened, uh, the the five years was a period of 60 months, and so the standard of uh, the dollar they used, the standard of value, uh, the minute, was divided into 60 shekels, just like minutes and seconds are, are 60th uh, come uh, from that period of the time. Uh, so you had a doubling time of debt of five years. Now, you also gradually had uh, the public institutions in charge of uh, unused land or free land that wasn't settled, this land was lent out to, to uh, cultivators, or sharecroppers, uh, for one-third of the crop. And based on this one-third of the crop, interest rates were also charged uh, at, at one-third. Uh, and basically, uh, land would be advanced, uh, perhaps cattle, if people needed money, uh, that would be advanced. And that we have even uh, a function called uh, the ale women. The, uh, they'd go to a bar 
and they'd uh, uh, run uh, up a tab uh, at the bar. Now the interesting thing is these debts uh, were owed in barley. And one of the first things that many rulers did in the ancient Near East, the first thing they would do would be to announce a set of prices. Uh, and in Hammurabi's laws, for instance, uh, one shekel of silver was the equivalent of one liter uh, of barley. So the, if you made barley, you could pay in barley. There was also uh, a, a rate of exchange with uh, sheep, with wool, uh, with other ways of paying debts. So the original uh, money was a price schedule uh, to enable people to pay uh, in kind. And the barley, obviously people did not go around with barley in the pocket because it really doesn't uh, last very well. Uh, people didn't use money actually to pay. Uh, what they would do during the crop year, they would do essentially what somebody would do in a bar today. They run up a tab. Uh, and they would run up a tab with the alewomen. Uh, for uh, money that would be due on the threshing floor at uh, the seasonal harvesting time. And in fact, almost all the barley debts, and we have the contracts from uh, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, were due on the threshing floor at barley time. Uh, the silver debts uh, were due at another time. Uh, and you, this was the, I, the principle that uh, lasted until about 1200 B.C. Then, uh, instead of global warming now, there was a global freezing then. There was a dark age. Uh, we sort of lose uh, statistics and uh, writing for uh, until about 750 BC. Then, what you had was a gradual recovery, and you had traders coming from Syria and Phoenicia uh, across the Mediterranean uh, to Greece and antiquity. Uh, that's when civilization began to go downhill. Uh, it's usually considered the start of Western civilization. But what people think is the start of Western civilization was the falling apart of Near Eastern origins of civilization, of this uh, economy that had been put together in a very well-organized economy. Uh, and all of a sudden, instead of the public institutions, uh, you had uh, local chieftains uh, occurring. And in Rome, uh, very soon, you had the aristocratic families overthrow the kings. Uh, and the functions that were in the public sector in uh, the Near East all of a sudden were taken over by uh, private families. Uh, let's call them the Mafia, because that's basically what uh, the Roman oligarchy was. And there was a complete uh, change in policy from the Near Eastern Bronze Age to classical antiquity. Uh, when a new ruler would come to the throne in uh, Mesopotamia, the first thing they would do on their first full year of the throne was to proclaim a clean slate. Uh, and that's because uh, a lot of the debts that were denominated in barley couldn't be paid. If, there were, uh, if you look at Hammurabi's laws again from 1750 BC, uh, uh, if there was a flood, uh, the debts were annulled. If there was a drought, the debts were annulled. If there was military hostilities and they couldn't be paid, the debts were annulled. And there was a general understanding that the debts tended to grow faster than the means to pay. Now, we have the mathematical training texts that scribes were taught in Babylonia in 2000 BC. And you can imagine my surprise after teaching graduate economics for uh, many years here in New York at the New School, that I found that the mathematics used in 2000 BC were far superior to the mathematical models being used today. Not simply because they had to use, uh, the scribes had to learn quadratic, quadratic equations, but because they had two basic 
uh, contrasts. They had uh, uh, the doubling time of death. Uh, one of the exercises was how long does it take uh, a minute to double in uh, value? The answer is five years. How long does it take to quadruple in value? Ten years. How long does it take for it to multiply 62 times? The answer is uh, 30 years. So you knew that here's this uh, exponential curve of debt very rapidly. What we, they also had were uh, curves for the growth of herds and, uh, and output. And that was uh, an S-curve, just like almost all economic statistics today show an S-curve. But what you have, and I'll uh, show you shortly, is uh, the contract, the tendency of the debts to grow faster than to be paid. So uh, the rulers, when they came in, would cancel the debts uh, for a very good reason. Unfortunately, in Babylonia uh, and Sumer, they there was never an explanation book, here's how we do things. Uh, but one of the Roman historians uh, wrote uh, the explanation he was given by the Egyptians for why the pharaohs canceled the debts. They said, if we don't cancel the debts, then the debtors are going to fall into bondage to the creditors, as you can read in the Bible, and uh, then uh, nobody's going to fight in the army and will be defeated. And so in order to keep a land-tenured army, we have, to have, we have to return the land to the people who've lost them to the creditors. We have to uh, free them from bondage. Otherwise, uh, everybody's going to leave. There will be depopulation, and uh, we'll be defeated. Uh, in the third century BC, a Greek uh, general called, uh, who went under the name of Tacticus wrote a uh, manual for how to conquer a town and how to defend a town. If you want to conquer a town, you say, I'm going to cancel your debts, and you'll get the people on your side. Uh, if you want to defend a town, you say, I'm going to cancel the debts of everybody, you know, as soon as we win. That's what Zedekiah did in Rome, but the Romans were mafiosi, and he went back on his word. No, that's what uh, Coriolanus did in Rome. That's what Shakespeare's play was all about, went back on his word. Uh, same thing in, in uh, Judah, uh, Zedekiah in the Bible promised uh, to cancel them, he didn't. Uh, that's what makes the first millennium BC very different from the, uh, uh, the Bronze Age. Well, what happened by the time of uh, 133 BC was uh, in Rome you had basically a, a Milton Friedman philosophy uh, of uh, free markets uh, by the oligarchy. And what they realized in Rome was exactly what uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger realized in Chile. You can't have a free market for creditors if you don't murder everyone who disagrees with you. If you don't kill everyone who wants to cancel the debts, if you don't kill everyone who knows history, if you don't kill the labor leaders, you can't have a free market oligarchy style. So they, uh, they murdered the Gracchi, they murdered uh, the supporters of the debt cancellation, and uh, essentially there was a hundred years social war in Rome, uh, and the result was that uh, by the time the empire got going, one quarter of the Roman population was in debt, bondage, uh, or outright slavery. So uh, I'm going to do a little fast forward to the modern era. At the time of the American Revolution, uh, the, uh, by the, in the medieval time, after the Dark Age, you had something new that didn't occur in antiquity. You had public debts. No, and all these debts were for war debts. Basically, it began with the Templars, uh, in, after the Crusades, and then the Venetians and the Genoese, the big bankers lending to uh, kings in order to wage war. By the time of the Napoleonic Wars, 75% of Britain's budget 
the public budget was spent on debt service. So at the time of the American Revolution, Adam Smith, Reverend Richard Price, and other people were in, who said, oh, sent congratulations to the American revolutionists. They said, let them go free. It's not worth waging war. I'm not sure how to go down with this, but here is a chart that was done uh, in 1776 by uh, Richard Price, who said, if, uh, one, if, Jesus, if one penny was saved at the rate of 5% at the time of Jesus, this penny would now be a solid sphere of gold extending from the sun out to the planet Saturn. I actually recalculated it would go all the way to the planet Uranus. Uh, and uh, he was trying to show the uh, impossibility of ever trying to pay uh, the national debt as it, uh, it amounted to. Now we know that there were many uh, uh, rich people uh, that did save pennies in the time of Jesus. Uh, in fact, Seneca, uh, the philosopher, made up over 20% on his loans to Asia Minor. Cicero uh, uh, made uh, uh, a lot of loans. Uh, none of these uh, debts ever were repaid because again and again there was a collapse of, uh, when there was a bankruptcy. The uh, debtor would fall into bondage. Uh, the good thing about bankruptcy and about modern bankruptcy laws is not only is the debt canceled, but something even better happens. The savings are canceled. And today, you have 90% of the savings and net savings in America held by the upper 10% of the population. These are the population today that are trying to do to the American economy uh, what the, uh, the oligarchy uh, did in Rome, basically, which is to impose a kind of uh, debt peonage on the population where you have a situation that uh, if you buy a house, you have to take a 30-year uh, mortgage uh, and essentially spending the rest of your life uh, paying off uh, the mortgage debt to get a place of li to live, whereas land used to be free to all citizens originally. To get an education, you have to now take an, uh, an, a student loan out uh, that is going to absorb your income for 10 or 20 years, that is not subject to the bankruptcy laws, that cannot be wiped out, uh, that essentially, whether you get a job or not, uh, you have to pay. The result is that many students, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, are, uh, who are not able to get jobs have to live with their parents. The parents have to pay the loan. Uh, the Republican presidential candidate, Mitt Romney, said, we'll borrow the money from your parents and repay, you know, because they're not going to dun you, like uh, you're reading about in the Wall Street Journal, is happening with student loans. You're having the entire society now uh, loaded so down with debt that one quarter of American real estate uh, owns, owes a larger debt than the money is available for. So what you're having is uh, essentially money is debt deflation. That's why we're having the bad, the bad employment statistics that uh, on Monday, you remember, or the, the day after uh, the uh, President uh, Obama's speech, uh, out came the employment figures, and every uh, newspaper article of almost every economic uh, uh, statistic has two words, uh, unexpected and surprising. Well, yesterday, there are new figure. the Financial Times reported the new consumer credit in America. And it says uh, consumer credit in the U.S. unexpectedly fell in July. And then it, again, it said uh, nobody, who could have thought, uh, debt revealed surprise fall uh, in debt. Well, here's what happens. 
people have to pay off the debts or they get the Dunning phone calls that uh, many of you as students might get. If you pay the creditor, you are not able to, uh, to buy goods and services. Something has to give. And in America, you have about 40% of the American workers' budget uh, going to pay uh, for housing. 15% of the uh, wages uh, are taken out for Social Security and Medicare uh, as loans to uh, the government. Instead, whereas uh, Randy has said, the government doesn't really need this money. The government says, well, we want to keep uh, wages down. We want to keep spending power down. So we're uh, making you pre-save for Social Security uh, so that we have a huge fund that now that we have this money, we can afford to cut taxes on the rich uh, so that, and pretend that somehow the whole uh, thing is in balance uh, until you have uh, the Bowles Simpson Commission that says, well, we can't afford to pay. We only pay the rich, uh, not uh, the Social Security people. Uh, after all, that basically is the political dynamic we have here. Uh, so what you're having as a result of the government absorbing money uh, for debt service and the government bailing out the banks with a $13 trillion worth of bank giveaways is that uh, the debts have been left in place for the American economy at such a high rate that uh, the corporations must pay a high amount of money. If you're hiring a worker here, you have to pay the worker a high enough money to pay 40% of his income for housing, 15% for Social Security, 15% for other debt, uh, and about 10% uh, uh, in other taxes. So before the worker has enough money even to begin buying goods and services, 75 to 80% of his income goes to the finance, insurance, and real estate sector. Uh, and the economy, basically, uh, is uh, two economies. Well, uh, the result is that, uh, at least in America, Things have been kept going because the Federal Reserve and the government, basically, has been able to keep monetizing enough money to, in, to keep the economy uh, from collapsing. That's not the case in Europe. Uh, every central bank w was uh, founded to do just exactly what Randy has said, to monetize the government debt, mainly the war debt, but basically to uh, create, uh, uh, create money and say, uh, here's money, we're spending it into the economy, this growth in debt in every country is what has provided the private sector with uh, enough money to uh, keep growing and transacting goods and services. Uh, in the, for the first time uh, in modern history, under the Clinton administration, he actually run a budget sur uh, surplus. That meant the government, is, well, the government was not spending money into the economy. Uh, that uh, people if, in, had to borrow from the banks at interest. So uh, when the government uh, balanced the budget, this was a bonanza for the banks because now they uh, would lend to people. And uh, Ellen Greenspan said, borrow against your house. You can always sell it to the greater fool three years down the road. So take out a three-year mortgage. It doesn't have an exploding interest rate that goes up because the average American moves every three years. And you can always find somebody else because I, Alan Greenspan, am going to keep flooding the economy with enough money to make you all rich by going into debt. Well, this is the first time in history when people thought that they could get rich by going into debt. Every society until now has tried to stay out of debt, to avoid mortgaging the house, to avoid taking the risk. Uh, but now uh, they're going into debt. Uh, we can see the disaster that would happen in America by looking at Europe, where uh, the European Union does, uh, does not have a central bank and uh, that is monetizing the government debt. 
Uh, the bank laws uh, were, were written by the banks to, uh, to force the banks to provide all of the money that the private sector needs to grow. And sure enough, the, uh, the debt has absorbed uh, everything so that uh, in this uh, uh, week's New York Review of Book, George Soros has an analysis along very similar lines saying exactly why uh, the European Union uh, is falling apart uh, for that. So uh, the phenomenon that we're facing today is debt deflation, uh, people having to pay the debt, and it's needless. Uh, in antiquity, uh, any, uh, the rulers would have simply wiped out the debt, and people think that that's unthinkable. Uh, it, it, on this very floor in this very building on Sunday, uh, Sheila Baer uh, gave a talk to the alternate banking group of Occupy Wall Street uh, and was saying how she wanted to close down Citibank. She said there's no reason at all that we could, have, could not have paid all of the insured depositors at Citibank. What would have been wiped out are the derivatives and all the gambling uh, that don't have anything to do with uh, real lending for goods and services. Uh, the banks lend essentially not to produce, uh, but to, uh, uh, against collateral, to bid up real estate prices and stock prices. Government spending that Randy's talking about is spent on goods and services, guns and bombs and the things governments spend money on, but also employment and roads and bridges. Uh, and so you have a completely different kind of money uh, as opposed to bank credit spent on different things, goods and services, as opposed to asset prices. So uh, I wanted to give this background to conceptualize that there are two spheres of the economy. The asset sphere of real estate uh, and uh, financial securities as opposed to the goods and services. Economics department talks as if money is only spent on goods and services but 99% of bank credit is spent on mortgages, bank loans, stocks, and bonds, and that is all invisible uh, in the economics curriculum. Uh, that's why we're here today in this series of talks to fill in uh, what you don't get in the economics department. Thank you. Very much.